Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The race is on, and with Mercedes and Lewis Hamilton leading the way into Formula One's summer break, we try and make some sense of the performance patterns of the first part of the season and explain the latest power unit paranoia that's arisen. And we delve into why Aston Martin thinks it has a shot at getting Sebastian Vettel's Hungarian Grand Prix second place back. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to unravel these topics are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Scott, how are you, uh, how are you enjoying... A little bit of respite after eleven races in however many weeks. Yeah, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't feel like the summer break has started just yet because obviously we had such a chaotic and brilliant Hungarian Grand Prix to pick over. There's been all sorts of fallout from that, and then obviously you you get into the busy process of trying to plot out two and a half weeks, three weeks of content um, without any races to help you out. So um, yeah, the first week after the season, or the first half of the season, ostensibly finishes. That never actually feels like some time off, but um yeah i suppose it's quite nice i i have to admit it's very different to previous uh obviously last year was completely unusual but it's very different to previous seasons i can remember with a summer break because the season's so good and yeah it's nice to have a little bit of a breather i suppose but i'm actually like every, every weekend every grand prix i'm just excited to see which way the pendulum swings this time and what happens on track so it's kind of curious happy to have some time off but actually quite eager for it to start again already yeah, I think this is probably the best season we've had in a long time just for sheer head-to-head world championship battle and needle and everything. It's just been brilliant. Mark, is it up there for you in terms of great seasons? Yeah, it's got everything, hasn't it? It's um, It's got a close contest between the two preeminent drivers from two different teams and there's a bit of controversy around it. Yeah, it's a vintage season, absolutely. It'll go down in the history books as one of the great ones. Yeah, it's just great. We've managed a whole half season of it just keeping going. And I think we'll manage a second half as well. So that there's plenty for us to, to get into and loads for us to talk about over the summer. And of course, throughout the August break, the Race F1 podcast will be with you. So let's delve into it, Scott. Before we get into the wider competitive picture, we should talk about these rumours going on about engine suspicions on both the Mercedes and Honda side about each other. Can you explain exactly what this is all about? Well, I can do my best, but um, I don't quite have the same sort of inherent title fight paranoia that I think is sort of starting to creep into the two sides of the the title battle. So um, maybe I won't be able to fill in all the blanks, but it essentially comes down to just this slightly change in dynamic in the straight line speeds of the two the two packages and sort of what that does or doesn't mean and, and, and how how and why the advantage in this particular battleground keeps on changing because 
as the season sort of progressed, Red Bull seemed to establish a straight line speed advantage, but this has been reversed in the last couple of races. Uh, and so it all comes down to the reason for that. Uh, in establishing the ascendancy on on the straight line speed, Red Bull and Honda were absolutely adamant this was only ever down to, to wing levels. It was the Red Bull adopting a skinnier rear wing. Um, it was pure coincidence, they said, that this emerged at the same time Honda's second power unit was introduced in France. Uh, it had nothing to do with a power up uh, in- increase or any kind of change in what they were doing with the with the engine from France. It was purely down to this rear wing. There was a change in specification with the second Honda power unit, but it was purely for reliability. It went through all the usual uh, bureaucracy with the FIA and then the changes being run past the other power unit manufacturers as well. There was no controversy there or suggestion that what Honda had done was sneak through a performance upgrade. So that's sort of the that was the initial sort of basis of it. But then we got to Silverstone, where Red Bull ran a ran a a, a bigger rear wing, and the the straight line speed advantage went to to Mercedes again. Aero-wise, you can pin it on the rear wing, but then Hungary was sort of, I guess, the bigger anomaly because they were Red Bull was slightly slower on the straights, I think, in Hungary, and then because of some balance issues they were having, switched to a skinnier rear wing, which only brought them level on straight line speed or thereabouts, rather than put them ahead. So again, the aero configuration had made an impact in Hungary, but it didn't seem to have exactly the impact that perhaps Mercedes were expecting. So the implication was that uh, to to embrace the theories in full, that Honda had made a step forward in France, but then been pegged back at some point in Britain or Hungary. Now, obviously, Honda refutes this emphatically, says that there's not been any directive, there's not been any behind-the-scenes nudge to stop what they're doing or change what they're doing. Um, Whereas on the Mercedes side, they say, well, they haven't changed anything on their side to gain power. There's nothing different on the Mercedes package for for that car to be quicker in a straight line. So brilliant. You've got one side of the ones, one side saying that the other is doing something different and has got quicker. And the other side saying we've not done anything. The other side are doing something different and they've got slower. So um, it's... <sighs> It's just a bit. I, I think it's just a bit of. Uh, I think it's a bit of finger pointing, um, and I think it comes down to the fact that it hints that neither side really understands everything about the other's engine package, and I think that combined with how complex it, it is for each aerodynamic platform of the two cars, and how that manifests itself on track, I think that just naturally makes an inconsistent pattern. We know that the packages are extremely closely matched. They've got different strengths and weaknesses. Different uh, circuits will uh, will favour different car and aero and downforce and drag characteristics. So it's not that extraordinary, really, to think that the straight line speed advantage just shifts track to track, depending on the exact nature of the circuit and the car setup. But you alluded to it in your question or when you were framing this, Ed. I think it does come down to a dash of second guessing and paranoia, trying to work out what the other's doing, leading to wrong conclusions and just assuming that someone's doing something wrong but whatever it is we've got two power sensitive tracks coming after the summer break Spa and Monza so I doubt this is the last we'll be talking about it. It's one of those things where each side knows everything about what they're doing and they know quite a lot about the other side in terms of the data 
But there's a tendency, I think, to assume a steady state in all other things that you can't know about. So sometimes if you see any kind of anomaly in the competitive pattern and the, the relative performance, you kind of label it X and then say X is something a little bit odd. And I, I, I like it because I just think it shows what happens in these kind of title fights. It's so close. It's swinging back and forth so much that everything is being looked at. And you do get this this almost paranoia as the two teams drive each other on. What do you make of it, Mark? Do you think there's anything here or do you think this is just the, the usual effect of a an intense competition and it sends everyone a little bit over the edge in terms of that paranoia? Yeah, absolutely that. I mean, there may be some electronic developments, you know, that, that, that aren't um, controlled by the the regulations there they've been able to make some progress on on one side or the other but no i don't don't think there's anything significant really in anything going on i think um where the optimum point of downforce drag trade off between the two cars is as different from track to track and when you go to silverstone red bull found that the quickest way for them was to have a was to carry a, a relatively big wing and when you look at the performance trace comparison between the two cars on their qualifying laps you'll see that the the red bull was significantly quicker through the slow stuff and was entering the straights significantly quicker as a result and the merc was gradually catching up catching up and by about two-thirds of the way down the straight was going faster so it was much faster through the speed trap because the speed traps at the end of the straight but it wasn't getting from the beginning of the straight to the end of the straight any quicker than the red bull there was still about about the same in that measure and that's the critical thing that's that's you know it doesn't really matter what your speed trap speed is what matters is how long it takes you to get down the straight um so yeah we that that balancing point for the red bull was quite different at silverstone to where it had been in austria relative to mercedes and then we go to hungary and hungary is just complete red herring because for some reason which we'll talk about in a minute the the Red Bull got nowhere near the sweet spot of their car. They were off by a whole chunk because they just could not get the car balanced and had to reduce the downforce on a downforce sensitive track. So any comparison you you bring in Hungary into it's going to pollute that comparison completely. It, it it's it just should be deleted from the comparison because there was something very clearly wrong with the Red Bull there. It's one of the great things about having so many different circuits, isn't it? That when you've got two cars that are close just those those changing characteristics and the track performance sensitivities can make all the difference. And that's why it's it's been able to surprise us a few times this season, which is exactly what we want to see. If you look at it overall, taking qualifying pace, Red Bull and Mercedes are so close together. They're about a hundredth of a percent off each other on on average or something ridiculous like that. It's it's amazingly close in terms of, uh, of, of that performance. And yeah, it, it's understandable when things are so tight that it can be very difficult to account for every last thousandth of a second, should we say. But let's let's get a little bit more into the wider performance pattern, Mark, after talking about the power units. We did expect Red Bull to be stronger in Hungary. You touched on it there in terms of the not getting into the sweet spot, but you could just say that the Mercedes Silverstone upgrade has tipped it back to being ahead. So do you think it's that? Or is it a little bit more complicated and if we dare make any predictions, what should we expect from here? Yeah, it is more complicated than that. Red Bull was four tenths slower than Mercedes around the Hungara ring. And just two races earlier in Austria, it was three tenths faster around a short track. So there's no way on God's earth that a relatively 
small tweak to the Merck's bargeboard and floor was found seven-tenths. It's, it's the misnomers here is Red Bull's performance in Hungary. It was off by a lot um, for the first time all season. It couldn't even comfortably clear the top 10 on the medium tyre. It needed a soft just to ensure getting into Q3. Um, so, yeah, as I said before, they were nowhere near the sweet spot of the car, and they even had to remove downforce on one of the most downforce-rewarding tracks on the calendar simply because they were at their maximum front wing angle and couldn't get rid of the understeer, which through those long corners cost you a disastrous amount of lap time. So you're surrendering lap time but not having access to all your downforce, and even then they still hadn't cured the understeer on the soft tyres, which if you look at the uh, two... Q3 laps of Hamilton Verstappen, you'll see how much more understeer Verstappen is carrying, even with the um, lower downforce rear wing. So no, we don't definitively know the lap time that the Merck's upgrades were worth, but if it was more than two-tenths, it would be unusually good. The team would snap your arm off if you you could guarantee that their upgrade was worth two-tenths. So... The swing is more like seven tenths, so even if the upgrade was a good one and brought a couple of tenths, it doesn't even begin to explain the inverted form. So Red Bull was in bigger difficulty here even than Mercedes and Monaco say. It's the furthest off the potential either either of the top two cars have been all year. And we should say that Silverstone upgrade for Mercedes was bargeboard floor and the the cake tins they uh, they upgraded. So significant, but it wasn't it wasn't a B spec car or anything. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that i guess scott the positive is that the hungaroring's not a particularly standard track is it it's it's there's not many more hungaroring's uh, to come so we will see different challenges particularly with spa and monza coming up obviously spa is a low downforce track but with the the more downforcey middle sector and then monza's just skinny arrow and uh, away you go yeah it's going to be interesting to see how uh the the packages perform at, at such contrasting circuits i should say i've forgotten zandvoort there because of course zandvoort in this slightly weird calendar is jammed in between those so i'm so used to spa and monza being together zandvoort's a little bit different more long corners there but it, again it, it's uh, a slightly brisker circuit than the hungaroring yeah I'd, I'd also forgotten about uh about zandvoort that but that'll be interesting as well obviously with the ultra fast final corner and then the run down to to, to turn one so <laughs> What what's interesting is if if you go back over the last few races, you know Mark was just pointing out just how much of a swing there's been from the Red Bull ring to the Hungaro ring. Um, I I just feel like every expectation I have going into a given race weekend sort of then ends up being a bit a bit a bit off, and it doesn't mean that you you can. Uh, it doesn't mean that you can't make predictions or have sort of you know a, a decent idea of which circuit's going to suit a, a a car better you know for example if we go to mexico then based on recent track record i would expect that to be quite a comfortable for stappen win because we know that the the honda power unit in particular seems to be just brilliant at at higher altitude but what about um what what about spa and uh, and monza if there has been this trend of the red bull and honda being quicker in a straight line because the red bull can trim out the rear wing a little bit then then great but what if red bull feel that actually based on silverstone they might be better off running a slightly bigger wing but the mercedes is in the sweet spot which then puts red bull in that difficult position of you know can we actually commit to the bigger rear wing because although it's quicker for us the merc's going to be too close to us in the race and they're going to drive past us so i i think we're in 
I think we're in a lovely window at the moment where the performance of the two cars overlaps just enough to make life constantly difficult, even on tracks that should um, theoretically suit one more than the other. And it's just it's just made me a bit more confident in how much how enjoyable the rest of the season will be because I I think we I think we ended the Red Bull ring double header thinking okay well we can sort of take into account that this does seem to be a place that suits the red the red bull and merc haven't always been mega there um but it did feel like there had been a significant step and part of that was obviously the off track narrative because we knew that there'd been loads of developments coming on the on the red bull and there weren't going to be any live developments for the merc so it did feel like we were potentially at a tipping point for the title battle and it was only going to go one way but that's now been completely uh balanced out again and actually tipped in favor of mercedes so now we actually go into the second half of the season where one might expect mercedes to be the weaker of the two cars but they're defending a points lead i don't think we could hope for a better situation to be coming out of the summer break into at the end of august this is the brilliant thing it confounds expectations and that's a good thing because when we make predictions all it is is putting what we know the kind of model of what we expect against the next track and then working out what we think will happen. And then sometimes when it doesn't happen, people say, oh, you're wrong now. And you think, well, actually, the prediction is just a thing to compare to what actually happens. That's like your prediction in your experiment. You see something different and those differences reveal what you can learn and understand about what's happening. And it's it's brilliant to have these small swings. And of course, one thing you can never completely account for is how well a team gets the most out of its package on a given weekend. We kind of assume teams like Mercedes and Red Bull will do the best they possibly can set up wise, but they they won't always. And these things can make a difference. If a team's like a tenth or two off where they should be, or a driver even, it can make so much difference. But it's added up to, to a brilliant season. But Mark, Max Verstappen's got five wins, Lewis Hamilton four wins. It's Hamilton who goes into the break quite unexpectedly, you would say, eight points clear. But if you were Max Verstappen, you'd be feeling pretty hard done by, shouldn't you? You'd be looking at it thinking, do you know what? I should be 20, 30 points at least up the road going into the break, wouldn't you? Yes, and the the, the tyre failure in Baku was really the the, 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 thing, the thing which has put Max behind. You could argue that the, the accident at Silverstone did, well, it did numerically, but he was at least partly to blame for that. So if you had to apportion blame, he, at least he could... Um, say to himself, well, yeah, I, I, that that was partly my decision. That wasn't something outside of my control, whereas the the tyre failure was, and there was a, an easy 25 points just, you know, gone. So, yeah, on if, if, if every race had just run straightforwardly according to the competitiveness of the, the cars and drivers, Max would be comfortably leading, yeah. And, and it's amazing to think that had Hamilton not had that brake magic button issue at at Baku and and had say completed that that pass on Perez to win the race, that'd be another twenty five points on top of it, which would be highly uh, highly improbable. Scott, difficult question, but of those two drivers, which one do you think has has the edge just in terms of that overall performance over the eleven races so far, regardless of points? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a difficult one to answer. I, I honestly, I think Max. Um, I think Lewis has made bigger mistakes this season and I think Lewis is lucky to be leading the points. Um, And that's not to say he doesn't deserve to be in a situation where he's fighting for the title or doesn't deserve to be in a situation where he could lead the points. It's just when you look at at what happened in Baku, they both non-scored there, but Lewis was 
responsible for the fact that he didn't score points. Max wasn't. Um, Silverstone, Lewis was judged predominantly to blame. So he has to cop the majority of the responsibility there for Verstappen not scoring any points. And then obviously Max was just, uh, yeah, I, I honestly don't think like my sympathies can extend more to the more to a driver than they did for Max at Turn One in in Hungary. That was just that was just utterly luckless. So on just yeah, just on the simple value of it, if you eliminate the stuff they're directly responsible for, Max has a lot more points than Lewis this season, um, and he's made fewer big mistakes. So I, I do think I do think it's the wrong way round in the championship in terms of absolutely who has been sort of the outright best but it's still an element of splitting hairs because I think they're both performing extremely well yeah I concur I'd put Max marginally ahead um he's been more consistent um Hamilton's mistakes two bit two major mistakes and I think you might you might argue that Hamilton's peaks have been higher his Bahrain win his Portugal win were both outstanding um but I think in terms of just an overall level for the first half season I'd put Max ahead yeah, I think we've got a, a full house just nodding slightly in, in Verstappen's direction in, in this case, because I'd be inclined to agree with that. Of course, Imola was a big mistake for Hamilton. He was fortunate to be able to come back through to second place there after he had his off into the gravel while while lapping George Russell. So that that was the other the, the other kind of big error uh, that he made. So yeah, two stunning drivers going at it. But yeah, just slight edge towards Verstappen. But there's a very long way to go in this championship. One of the two of them is going to win the championship. I suspect by the end of it, it's going to be one of those ones where you say, well, it's almost a shame both couldn't win it because it's going to be it's going to be that tight between the, the two of them. Two great teams, two great drivers really going at it. And long may it continue. I think we need to uh, we need to make sure that the um, once this obviously conversation goes through the British bias generator, where it'll be interesting to see how this comes out because we've all just sided with Max Verstappen, but based on what the internet says, we should have all decided with, sided with Lewis Hamilton. So I'm wondering how that's just going to be twisted once this podcast is actually edited and heard by the public. Well, definitely now you've addressed it slightly sarcastically, that will have uh, certainly helped the helped the case. But yeah, I'm just happy it's just a mega championship fight. That's all. That's all I want to see. I just want to see it keep going and keep going to Abu Dhabi. Ideally, the the, the deserved driver wins, but. I don't really mind who it is. I'm just, I'm just hoping it's going to be this epic fight for the rest of the season because that's that's exactly what we want in Formula One. Well, Scott, looking back to the Hungarian Grand Prix, we talked in our last podcast about the Aston Martin exclusion for Sebastian Vettel for not having the fuel sample. They have both appealed and sought a right of review on that. So is this two-pronged strategy a hit and hope or does Aston Martin have a genuine winnable case? I've got absolutely no idea because it's unprecedented to have this this combination uh, defence. Um, Aston Martin have said that it's requested a right of review alongside the appeal procedure because, and, and the wording is specifically to satisfy uh, what a right of review requires. Aston says that it's discovered significant new evidence relevant to the sanction that was unavailable to it at the time of the steward's decision, which is very convenient considering what you need to successfully get a right of review is to discover significant new evidence re- relevant to the sanction unavailable at the time of the original decision. Um, but yeah, Aston choosing to go down the appeal route and request a right of review is unprecedented. It means it's throwing everything at the available processes to boost its chances of getting the disqualification overturned. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised by that. Obviously, we know that this team was quick to embrace legal action last year as Racing Point. 
And if Lawrence Stroll, the, the, the chairman, the owner, feels aggrieved, we know he'll do everything he can to, to come out on top. Um, but both legal routes were open and Aston's acted quickly enough to pursue them both. I, I think it's actually quite clever uh, because why not? If, if you're worried that one of them might, become un, might come unstuck in, in some way, um, and you think that the failure of one doesn't impact the other, then 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 go for it because the review process exists separately to the appeal process. You know, the review is used to reopen a case with the stewards if there's sufficient new evidence, whereas the appeal process goes through the FAA International Court of Appeal, um, and the review process is much quicker because that is trying to get the Hungarian GP stewards to change the initial decision, whereas a full blown ICA case can take much longer. When we had the Hass one. That would have been that was in 2018. That was at the Italian Grand Prix, wasn't it? That they were that Roman Grosjean, I think, was disqualified. But I don't think the case got heard until the end of October or the start of November or or something like this. Um, so it can take a really long time. Uh, and obviously there are benefits either way. The interesting thing will be that because uh, yeah, I would expect if the review goes ahead or they hear the petition to review. That will be done first. So if the stewards reject Aston's new evidence, supposed new evidence, and they don't permit a review, can the appeal still go ahead with the FIA's international court? And I ask that as a question because we don't know. This hasn't happened before. So if the if the appeal of if a if a right of review of a verdict fails, would would they still allow an appeal of the same verdict? I assume they would, but that that would be quite interesting to see. Obviously, if it does go to the ICA, then Aston. It's better for Aston, I think, because they can present the case in full and argue it properly. Whereas with the review process, that can end before it even begins if the stewards fail to consider what Aston provides as as new evidence. Yeah, I presume it'll come down to whether they can prove there was some unusual reason why they couldn't get the fuel out. Because as I said on the previous podcast, there is the rule that the sampling procedure must not necessitate starting the engine or the removal of bodywork. So if everything's working normally and they couldn't get it out, then you're going to get excluded anyway, even if the fuel's in there. But I guess they will go for claiming that something has broken in the in the fuel pump or whatever that stopped them from from getting out of it. I mean, Mark, with what you know, do you think they've got a chance or do you think they're just hitting and hoping? I, I think the chances are against them. It would be very unusual for something like this to be overturned. But um, who knows, we're in, in, as Scott says, in uncharted territory here in terms of the uh, processes that have been used. Yeah, the first hurdle will be the right of review hearing, which is being heard today. That's Monday, August the 9th. So you can read all about the results of that on therace.com. And don't forget the hyphen if you're going to check there. But yeah, I don't know about how how they'll consider new evidence. But the one thing that Aston Martin can't simply do is argue that the fuel is in there because that's kind of by the by you can still be excluded when it's in there it's about getting it out and the reasons why they couldn't get it out so that's the uh, interesting question we'll be keeping track of that as that evolves well as mentioned on our hungarian grand prix review podcast we had some excellent questions from the race members club member justin kaufman on daniel ricardo that we plan to revisit so let's get on to those now because daniel ricardo he's had a very interesting half season and uh, Justin asks if Ricardo has a penchant for biting off more than he can chew since leaving Red Bull. Has he moved on too quickly from Renault slash Alpine? And has this put him in a place later on in his career where McLaren may look to move on from him after 2022, given the plethora of young talents on uh, young talents on the market? Well, Mark, 
a broad question about Ricardo. So it's about how he got here, what it means for him, and what do we make of his situation? It all comes back to that decision to leave Red Bull, doesn't it, at the end of 2018? It was a mistake. There's no two ways about it. The the trend was Max becoming faster there, that pairing, um, over one lap, but he was still close enough to compete with him. He was only even in 18, which is a further off the furthest off he'd been in qualifying in the the sessions where you could do a valid comparison, he was 0.12 off max. Um, so that, that's still easily close enough to compete with him on race day. And he could have been there now fighting fighting with Max and Lewis for the championship. And that's, that's the bare truth of it, which is not a particularly revelatory statement, I know. But whether subsequent to that, he was too keen to leave Enstone for McLaren if he jumped too soon there, I doubt. I don't know really that to me that that particular move made a lot more sense than his move from Red Bull it was the move to Renault that was the wrong one and yeah all all of that has taken up valuable years in his career and a whole generation has come of age since then so um yeah but it, I mean as recently as last year he was delivering truly fantastic performances he's one of the drivers who might on any given day deliver the best performance on the grid and the best driver is never the best driver every single race. They're closely enough matched in the circumstances so varied that a handful of drivers are capable of delivering the best single performance on the day. And as recently as last year, he was one of them. And if he can, can key himself back into that place, perhaps with a new generation of cars next year, he can still resume that race winning career, I'm sure. But if it still doesn't click with the new cars, because he got a nice reset there, because this McLaren is quite an unusual, it's got an unusual set of traits, which is, I suspect, being honed over a number of years of Lando Norris's particular style of driving, and it, it it's just led the aerodynamics down a particular path, and it's, it just doesn't work with the way Daniel wants to, or it, his muscle memory is trying to drive the car. Um, but so it, we get a reset next year with a new generation of cars, but if it still doesn't click, then. And the problem is revealed to be deeper seated than just just this particular car. I can see him calling it a day before, long before McLaren decide they're, they're going to replace him. He, uh, he's he's just too intensely competitive to be able to live with his level of substandard performance from himself. Um, so if 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 it continues into the new era, I I would expect not to see him complete the season. That's certainly a a, a big call. Um... I would expect, all things being equal, that with a new car next year, he should get back to a decent zero point, but it depends how much of those characteristics carry over. All new car, all new technical regs, but still the fundamental science underlying how McLaren produces its cars will still be the same. So some of these characteristics could carry over, which is the interesting question. We should say that Ricardo himself is adamant that the Red Bull departure was not a mistake. He will say, yeah, from a competitive perspective, it might look it, but he personally knew he had to had to move on. I'll be very interested to know what he says kind of 15 years down the line when the dust settled on his F1 career, if he still says that's the, the same thing. But it's a fascinating thing, Scott, isn't it? Because we kind of expected he'd, he'd dial himself out of this after the early parts of the season, but he's already said this is kind of the reality for me this year. We know that car is going to be what it is for the rest of the season. They can... That they can't dial out that that, that particular sets of stru- of traits that he's struggling with, so it's a really really tough season for him. Yeah, it is. I think uh, I think we've come to realise that 
the uh, it's something actually that Carlos Sainz has talked about before when he's changed between midfield teams. You know, he, he in the past he's often talked up the difficulty of changing team and and, and adjusting, and he's uh, he's feeling quite smug now. Is Carlos? I remember speaking to him a, a few days before the Hungarian Grand Prix, and he's basically it's the same thing he's been saying all year. He's like, I've been telling you guys this for years. It's really hard to change between cars, but because nobody like established or big was doing it and struggling. Um, nobody seemed to believe him. And I think we we're now seeing that with Daniel because I think we probably thought it would take a few races, um, not a lot of pre-season testing, obviously a day and a half in Bahrain, uh, but then eventually to start to learn the sort of uh, unique things, the different elements about the, the McLaren and he'd be on top of it. And I honestly expected him to complete that process by the summer break at the, at the latest and then have a really strong second half of the year. But it just... It doesn't seem that way, and I think this is going to follow him to the end of of the year because I think, in addition to it just it being genuinely difficult to adjust to a a new car and a, a new team, a new way of driving, uh, especially at the level that we're at in Formula One, where it really doesn't take much for a tenth or two or three tenths to to materialise in between the drivers. Um, in addition to that, I think Ricardo's on the extreme end of it because it does sound like what the McLaren needs is almost a polar opposite of how Daniel automatically drives and trying to unpick years and years of driving in a certain way isn't the work of a moment, especially when he's doing all of his live on-track experiments during a Grand Prix weekend. It's all well and good going into the simulator and trying to learn and apply different things, but that's not the same. It's like, you know, it's... (laughs) I take a really extreme example because I know that they're not exactly the same. It's like a tennis, it's like a right-handed tennis player after 10 years at playing tennis at the highest level um, suddenly starts trying to, you know, serve with their left hand instead of their right hand or something like that. And imagine only doing that in tournaments, you know, not practicing outside of those tournaments and doing that. It's obviously an extreme example. It isn't quite the same, but just I think trying to actually explain to people how big a reset it requires can be very difficult because it's it is just fundamentally difficult to make people understand the level of adjustment that is 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 being gone through at the moment. It's like trying to do something without you know when you're when you do stuff unconsciously it's so automatic to you you don't have to think about it and as soon as you start having to think about it you start to trip over yourself you start to do things a bit more clunkily nothing's quite as connected. That's the process Ricardo's going through at the moment and I I think he will be in that process until the end of the year and I think he will ultimately just be hoping that the 2022 McLaren doesn't give him the same headache yeah and you can you can hear from the onboards often they need him to break later and then turn in in a, in a very specific way sometimes he's turning in too aggressively because often if you break late you expect a slightly more aggressive turn in, but they want it more progressive he's getting towards the exit phase of corners he's under rotated so he's still having to get a little bit of turning done so that's compromising his exits and it's just all these different things. And he sort of chases one corner or one aspect of a corner and he loses another bit. So it's a really extreme case for Ricardo uh, in this situation. But it's so strange, isn't it, Mark? Because we, I mean, we both see, I know Ricardo as a driver who could be capable of winning a world championship. But obviously, he's kind of butting up against a, a wall here of the limits of his adaptability. So what do you think it's telling us about Ricardo? Is it just a, such an extreme car that it's just one of those things or, or is it just showcasing 
kind of a limitation that he has that maybe a, a Verstappen or Hamilton doesn't have in the same way. Difficult to do a direct comparison with another driver because you need to see them in the same situation. But um, there's nothing about Ricardo's previous career that suggests he was um, only worked over a very narrow band. There were some drivers you could say that of. You know, Jensen Button was very much like that. Um, Kimi Raikkonen was a bit like that. He's a bit like that. But there's nothing to suggest prior to this year that Ricardo was particularly um, sensitive to, to needing the car exactly as he likes it. I think it's more that the McLaren is a very unusual um, has a very unusual set of traits, and it's just something that Carlos Sainz has um, alluded to already uh, that it's it, it, it does drive rather differently to to any other car out there, and. Lando drives very differently to the other drivers out there and has done ever since his junior days. I remember watching a test session of him in Formula 3 at Silverstone and the way the way he rotates the car into a slower corner is very, very distinctive. And it's it's quite extreme. And I think he was he, he was there for quite a long time even before he made his debut. He was there in the simulator a lot. And I think it's probably led the aerodynamicist down a certain path. The, the the way he's been able to to get the rotation early early in the corner, um, it's allowed the aerodynamicist. It's opened up a window that's allowed them to to, to pursue something quite productive. And it's it's probably contributed to making the, the McLaren as quick a car as it is. Um, so, it, but it's it's at the same time it has made it a very um, particular car and, and what it demands of, of, of how it's how it's driven and I think Daniel's just arrived there just rocked up there expecting to just get in and tune it around himself and away he goes just like you know any other car and it's um, I, th- I think it's more a it's like, I think it's saying more about the car than about Daniel. There's um there's an interesting McLaren parallel to be drawn in a completely different championship. Um, I know out in IndyCar, you've got Pato Award who's doing a an amazing job for McLaren in IndyCar, but uh, someone like Felix Rosenqvist who has struggled to get those results. And um, last year I think it was the same for Oliver Askew. And what when Pablo Montoya got in the McLaren, uh, was it for the Indianapolis Road Course race before the Indy 500? And apparently uh, JPM sort of looked at uh awards data and was just like you know, that's not how you're supposed to drive a car but it's but it's basically like awards basically the only one who can get something mega out of the mclaren in indycar the way they set it up whatever they're doing um and it's just requiring quite it's requiring quite an alien driving style for a certain type of driver who is used to driving maybe a bit more conventionally or or, or whatever it is and, and that's obviously in a that's obviously in a spec spec series that shouldn't have such drastic differences uh, i just find it i just find it quite interesting that you've got a f- probably not to the same extreme in mclaren i dare say that daniel didn't have a look at lando's data at the first test and go well that doesn't make any sense uh but it's just in- it's just interesting just a, a complete quirk of of fate that mclaren presently in 2021 is competing in two championships with two completely different cars and going through a quite similar phenomenon where the car seems quite alien for one of its drivers but is working really well with another of its drivers who drives a certain way it's a good reminder of how difficult it is as well you know formula one drivers they're having to operate right on the edge of the performance envelope particularly when it comes to corner entry you're right on the edge of the limit behavior of the car it's it's incredibly difficult and we're talking about tenths of a second 
differences here. Absolutely highest level drivers really having to get it get it right. And it's just a reminder uh, of how strong the the best Formula One drivers are. In fact, even how strong the worst Formula One drivers are, uh, because that they're, they're all outstandingly good. It's just Ricardo now is obviously facing a, a what he's pretty much accepted is now a season long struggle. So all eyes are going to be on him early in twenty twenty two. Well, Scott, there's still some matters pending in the F1 driver market. One thing there was speculation about was if Mercedes would confirm its plans for George Russell and Valtteri Bottas. But now we're properly into the break. It seems that the wait goes on, doesn't it? Yeah, um, I'm. <laughs> oh, I'm going to regret saying this. Uh, I would now not expect anything until the week of the Belgian Grand Prix at the earliest. Um, I wonder if. Uh, be, I, <laughs> My gut feeling, and this is a gut feeling, it's not based on any kind of real inside information. My gut feeling is this, this, it's the decision's been made. It is it is Russell, uh, and I wonder if they're trying to make sure that Bottas's alternative situation is sorted out before it all gets announced, because it might be better for him to not have to. It, it, he's going to have to go into individual races now for the rest of the season, knowing that he's not driving for his team longer term. And there's a, there is always the risk within that that he isn't the team player Mercedes need him to be. He's maybe not absolutely on the limit because his head's been turned and he's distracted and demoralised or whatever. Just the motivation's not the same. The last thing you need to do in that situation is pile extra stress and distraction on top of that by Bottas having his future unknown, by Bottas going into every weekend with question marks, what are you going to do, where are you going, what's the latest... So I think it would make a lot of sense for that all to be done in one go. Announce that Russell's alongside Hamilton in Mercedes next year. Valtteri gets to announce his own deal. It might even be a case of, uh, it's obviously a bit of a, a, a different comparison, but remember when uh, Robert Kubica was allowed to announce that he wasn't going to be continuing in F1 uh, in, in, in 2020, obviously the reality was that <laughs> Williams weren't going to keep him, but it was... It was a Kubica was allowed to make that announcement on, on his own. Maybe there'll be a show of respect to Valtteri so that he 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 can do similar, or that they announce Valtteri's exit, so he can then announce what he's doing next before they do the next thing. I don't know, but I just think if it was going to happen in early in the summer break, I think it would have happened this week, um, or it would have happened by now. And yeah, I just can't shake the feeling that the decision's already been done. I quite like the fact that they said that Bottas's crash in Hungary wasn't going to change anything. In principle, that's the right attitude to take anyway because Bottas has been there for 90 races. He's won 10% of the Grand Prix started for Mercedes. Why should one mistake alter anything? But I think the real reason it doesn't change anything is because the decision's really already been made behind the scenes. Yeah, I think we're all pretty much in agreement on on that, that Russell will be in that car. I guess there's still scope for a surprise. But there's a few other areas in the driver market that are not completely set. One thing we are expecting in the not too distant future, exactly when it'll be, again, it might well be Spa Week, Mark, is Alpha Tauri announcing Pierre Gasly and Yuki Sonoda. It's a logical move, isn't it? Yes. I mean, despite his rookie errors and his, his difficulties in bouncing back from them, which is just really a typical tough F1 apprenticeship from a low experience base, there's a lot of belief in Sonoda's raw ability and it would make no sense to drop him after one season. So, uh, yeah, the, the, he's uh, there long-term, I think. Uh, he, he would have to 
follow it up with a disastrous um, sophomore season, I think, for that for that to be placed under question. And I, I don't think you will have it. I think you will be you, you will build on this season quite nicely, I'm, I'm sure. And Gasly is just doing a perfect job for the team this year. He's always on the pace. He's always up there pushing. He's, his confidence has run at an all-time high and, and feeding on itself, which is great to see. It's such a shame he had to take the runoff in Hungary as the carnage unfolded right in front of him in that, that, that first turn because he qualified fifth. He was a long way ahead of Ocon and Vettel who uh, qualified uh, ninth and tenth or eighth and ninth. and Eighth and tenth, I think. Because it was totally conceivable that with the, you know, the Red Bulls out and Mercedes Bottas out and Lando out and Lewis rejoining at the back after they switched to Inters, totally conceivable that um, Pierre could have won that race, which had he done so, in addition to Monza last year, would have marked him out a bit, wouldn't it be? But the point being that you give him the opportunity to win, you you can be sure that he will. He's he's that level of driver, so. Yeah, he's he's probably um, it's probably a higher level of uh, driver than the, um, the 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 team's status really warrants at the moment. So that's that's a nice position for them to be in. I think Gas- Gasly knew that uh, he knew what opportunity had slipped through his fingers. Obviously, through no fault of his own in Hungary, because he was he was kind of you could tell it was just eating away at him post race. Uh, he he was. When when an opportunity like that emerges and you see a bunch of other guys who you were quicker than fill the podium places, fill the top five places, then he, there's no one except Hamilton ahead of him at, at the in the results where he looks at and goes, yeah, that's fair. They should have beaten me. He thinks he should have been ahead of everybody. And Mark alluded to it there about giving him a chance to win and he will. I, said, I think I've said this before on a previous podcast, but I think Pierre is a... If, if, you know, if if this was an American sport, you know, Pierre would be have a reputation as a properly clutch performer, someone who, someone who just when an opportunity emerges, and sort of the stars align, he absolutely nails it. And in those crunch moments where you absolutely need to deliver, that's where Pierre shines. I always felt like he's someone who, with a little bit of a point to prove with a little bit of me versus the world with a little bit of me and my moment to shine that brings the absolute best out of Pierre um the difference between him now and past Pierre is that I think his baseline level has now got to a point where it's extremely good so I now think he's just good or very good a lot of the time and then when that moment arises if that moment arises for him to be spectacular oh he can be spectacular so yeah, I've uh, my estimation of Pierre has only increased over the last couple of years. And just as a side note on Sonoda, four points finishes in the last six races he's had. He's also got more points after 11 races than Daniel Kvyat had last season in that team. Obviously difficult to compare from year to year, but that shows that he is contributing to the team, certainly to the, the same level points-wise as Daniel Kvyat was. So if he can build on that, a few more mistakes, admittedly, from Sonoda, but there have been some positives. But Scott, the really big question marks are over the Williams and Alfa Romeo driver lineups. There's potential for wholesale changes there. So how do you see those seats shaking out? It's really it's really difficult to judge. It, it all depends on Bottas's situation and what Bottas chooses, because for a long time, it just seemed like Bottas to Williams, straight swap with Russell, just made a lot of sense. And then Williams would probably be able to keep Nicholas Latifi in the other car because that's fine. 
got proven race winning driver in one car latifi is a third year in the other isn't isn't a, an offensive solution but there just seems to be more and more whispers of bottas at alfa romeo and uh it wouldn't be the choice i make if i was in that position but bottas is a grand prix driver and i'm not so he probably has better judgment than i do um and if that happens and i don't know whether that would be bottas and giovanazzi or they'd go wholesale when they do bottas or i um I have no idea what that means for Williams because outside of Bottas, I can't see who you would want to get that would be in any way a valid replacement for Russell. They, it can't be Latifi and a and a rookie, really, unless they accept that 2022 has to be a holding year. The only saving grace is that there are a few there are a few really interesting younger drivers around. I mentioned Ilot in an Alfa Romeo context. Maybe Williams could do some kind of a deal with Alpine to get their hands on Oscar Piastri, who's a driver I really rate. Uh, I, I think Piastri's the the best of the Alpine Academy guys. Uh, I think he's better than Guan Yu Zhou. And although I know that there's been some kind of uh, link of uh, speculation about Zhou and and, uh, and 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 Williams, I, I, if it was Latifi and Zhou, then I, I I think that's such a backward step from where they are now. Latifi and Piastri at least has a slightly more interesting dynamic just because I think Piastri is a more well-rounded driver and I think he's got a higher ceiling of, of potential than, than Joe has. So, yeah, if if Bottas goes to Williams, then I think Alpha kind of muddle on okay with their options with, you know, Giovinazzi and a, maybe a Ferrari protégé. If... Bottas goes to Alpha. I think Williams are a bit stuck, but yeah, it's very, very difficult to call. Yeah, certainly the experienced options on the market, Unica Hulkenberg, Danny Kvyat, they've got asterisks against them in terms of uh, their, shall we say, level of achievement, what they could do. I think what Williams would really love is a is a kind of superstar rookie, maybe to put alongside the safe pair of hands that is is Latifi, who's continuity probably offers something to the, to the team and he would come with money as well they say they don't need it but money's never a bad thing for a Grand Prix team so it's it's a strange position but that Bottas question is an interesting one Mark which one would you go to of those two teams if you were Valtteri Bottas assuming of course he wants to keep going I think you'd be reluctant um, there might be a measure of reluctance in going back to Williams because it just feels like you, you you're going backwards. I know realistically you're coming out of Mercedes, so you're going backwards anyway, but it would it would just reinforce that feeling, seeing the same, you know, the, the, the same factory, the same faces. It's it's taking you back to before you had any success. And I, it, maybe maybe that's playing a part. He, he maybe feels he wants at least something different so that it doesn't feel quite so, um, you know, retrograde. Um, so maybe the alpha thing has some appeal and you know i think valtteri would bring a lot to that team and it would bring a, an impetus that it's lacking at the minute um so it, it could it could be quite interesting they're not that far off the the midfield pack and you you look in terms of lap time that it doesn't qualifying could valtteri bring the extra 10th 10th and a half that would be required to to put it in a more interesting part of the grid i think he probably could um, so yeah, I I can see I can see why you might be thinking that rather than Williams, but um, not that not that Williams would be a disastrous choice. But it, as for Williams, yeah, I I agree with you. My my preference would be an experienced, safe pair of hands that can 
on a good day reach a high level of performance. Um, my preference there would be Hulkenberg and yeah, a star and rookie. Um, so I would, you know, look to have a that that sort of balance there if, if I was Williams. Yeah, Hulkenberg's got the potential for the peaks. I think Latifi offers continuity. I guess that's your trade-off when it when it comes to that. But an interesting situation. Although, Scott, we should say one driver that won't be at Williams. He was always a rank outsider, but Dan Tickton has now parted company. He was always kind of on the periphery, given he was in their driver scheme. And, and we know he's someone with ability, but he's now no longer part of Williams. No, he's not. He um, they, they, they split before the Hungarian Grand Prix weekend. It's emerged, um, which now explains a little bit more why Tictum, um rather gracelessly mocked Nicholas Latifi on a live stream he did while um, playing a video game. Uh, obviously, there was a point before this was all known where it seemed like Tictum had done that prior to being dropped, which obviously was even worse. But even knowing he did it after he'd been dropped just shows a sort of lack of class, doesn't it? Um if, for all his claim that uh, he sort of implied that the only reason they've they've split is because there's no seat for him in 2022, um, and he says, you know, thanks a lot to Williams. Hope to work together in the future. Um, if that's really your attitude, if you're trying to maintain, you know, you're trying to keep the bridge between you and the team, you wouldn't mock one of their current F1 drivers, would you, publicly, and say pay driver, and you know, say that he's poo to the to the tune of the uh, the the, the Scooby Doo theme, it's just it's just really juvenile, to be honest, and immature. And I, all the suggestions are that there is something else that's gone on. I think more than once. I think there's probably a few factors involved because even if there's not a 2022 seat available for him, why would you cut it? Why would you cut the ties halfway through the season? Um, is a Williams Academy role, whatever it's called, is a Williams. Uh, junior role stopping Tictum doing a deal with someone else like I can't see why that would be the case Um, if he's been doing stuff in the simulator and he's been doing a good job and he's an asset Williams wouldn't want to just drop that for the rest of the year and Tictum wouldn't want to stop doing that Uh, so if this is amicable then it would continue to the end of the year and then you'd part ways wouldn't you when Tictum stops racing in Formula 2 um I, I I don't believe it for a second that this was just something that happened. I think something has gone on behind the scenes, and now Williams is among the people that that, that Tictum's fallen out with in Formula One. And, and if that is the case, which I, it, it, all the evidence does seem to point that way, um, I think that says a lot because I just feel like if Will, if if you can even burn your bridges with Williams, then there's not really anyone in Formula One that's gonna have much patience for you yeah it's one of those things i'm all for giving second chances third chances and obviously people make mistakes and i i I firmly believe people should be given the chance to kind of rehabilitate themselves but yeah it's a little bit too much of a repeating pattern there and ultimately fundamental ability has never been the the problem there i think people know how good tictum can be but yeah maybe just needs to think about the the approach and uh still the abilities there and he's still young enough to really make us a success of his career and uh, hopefully he does 
Well, thanks very much for your insights, Scott and Mark. Do head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen as there'll be no shortage of stuff to read there during the summer break. The fourth season of the Bring Back V10s podcast, which tells classic F1 stories, is in full swing with the latest episode all about Jarno Trulli's famous win at Monaco in 2004. So that's well worth a listen. And our YouTube channel is also keeping busy. So just search for the race there if video is your thing. The Race F1 podcast will, of course, be with you throughout the summer break. So stay with us for plenty more from the world of Formula One.